our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. And as you take your seats, why don't you say hello to somebody? Welcome somebody maybe to church that you've not seen before. What a joy it is to be together today. Haven't the musicians blessed us this morning? What a blessing they are. I tell you, well, we had two fantastic weeks in Spain. The Costa del Sol. Wonderful. What a great time we had. But I tell you now, it's, it's wonderful to go away. It's necessary, you know, to have those times where you rest and you enjoy and things are a little different. You get time to be with family and just have a recharge of your batteries. But there is no place like home. There is no place like the house of God, being with the people of God, singing praises, remembering, recounting, recalling all that He has done in our lives. And I, I really do count it a privilege, and I know you all do. I just count it a privilege just to be part of the company of God's people. You know, irrespective of the responsibilities of being a pastor, and I tell you now, I'd just turn up if I wasn't any of those things because what a joy it is to just be a part of the family, to be a part of the body, to be a part of this glorious church of God that crosses nations and countries and covers the world. Hallelujah. What a privilege it is. To be a believer, to be part of the family of God, singing God's praises, it's a joy. And uh, I thank God that at least once in every week, I can come here with you on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the Lord's Day, and meet to sing our praises to God. You know, church is really simple. Sing our praises to God, fellowship with one another, and receive the Word of God into our hearts. Really, that's the core. That's at the core of every church. To raise our voice, sing praise to Him, to fellowship with one another, whether it's, like Faye said, here on a Sunday morning in that large corporate gathering, or whether it's when we meet together in our connect groups, in our homes, and to hear God's Word and to be a light into the world in which we live. They are really at the heart of this church, and, and really, if you look at it, at the heart of every church. And we never want to lose that, I tell you. You know, the importance of that. Let's always prioritize those things. We've got lots of things happening on in life. We're busy with lots of different things. Absolutely. But let's always be those people that seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness. Let's go after that. And everything else you'll find, Jesus will just sort out. He really will. He'll work it out 
He'll work it through. He'll give you all other things necessary for life and for living. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue in this series of messages that we began several weeks ago, Fresh Focus Thinking. And in this series of messages, really, it's all about focusing our thoughts afresh, afresh on God, on His Word for our lives. Focusing our mind on the Word of God, on the promises of God. Like Wayne exhorted us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And it's only as we allow God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit to renew and change our mind in the ways that we think and the attitudes that we hold, can we see all of the abundant provision and life that God has for us. As we allow God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit to correct and adjust and realign thoughts that may stray off, and thoughts that may want to dominate us that are not in God's Word. As we allow God's Word to correct, to realign, and refocus our minds on Him and on His Word, I tell you, you'll see the life of God, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in all of your life in an abundant way. We started a few weeks ago, if you remember, by looking at Asaph in Psalm 77, and we saw how the direction of his life was determined by the most dominant thoughts of his mind. And in Psalm 77, the first nine verses are filled with Asaph's negative thoughts. He was thinking negatively about life, thinking negatively about God. And it was causing him, his mind was causing him to spiral downwards. But, verse 10, wonderful transformation takes place in Asaph's life. He began to think about what he was thinking about. And he began to change his thoughts. He began to address his mind. He began to take responsibility for the way that he was thinking. And when he did that, everything changed. The picture of his life, literally in moments of addressing his mind and the way that he was thinking, in moments his, his life goes from a, a hopeless black picture to full color. It's a wonderful psalm. As I said, a psalm of two halves. The first nine verses are despairing words, pitiful words of a man who is spiraling downwards because he's not thinking correctly and he's looking at life through the wrong lenses. He's not processing life in the way that God wants him to. And as a result of that, his life is spiraling downwards. But verse 10, there's wonderful transformation. And the rest of the, the chapter, the nine verses after, I believe, 
are filled with Asaph contemplating God, thinking about his wonder, his magnificence, his glory, and his life, his confession, his attitude, and his daily experience massively was changed and transformed. He thought about what he was thinking about, addressed it, took control of it, began to embrace and meditate on God's Word for his life, and everything changed. We may be there today. The mind is a battlefield. The mind needs to be taken hold of. You need to have a firm hand on it. Don't let it direct you. You speak to that thing. You tell it that it's going to go in the direction of God's Word and not in the way that it wants to take you. We have to put a firm hand on our mind sometimes to see what God wants us to see. You watch, you start taking your mind and dragging it away from some of the things that it wants to go into. You, you start taking it under the, the, the tuition and the instruction of God's Word. My God, it'll obey you. It'll obey the Spirit of God inside you. And you'll live healthy and wealthy in your mind and in your life and in your attitude and in your interactions with people. And you'll be everything that God wants you to be. Now it's a process. It's a process. It really is. It's a journey. But these are messages to encourage us in that way. They really are. Then after we looked at Asaph, we also looked at Paul. See, even the greatest men of God have had their struggles. And that's what I love about the Word of God. It takes us into the hidden, dark places of men and women's lives to show us their struggles, to show us their, their, their challenges, and they don't hide them. They just bear them so that we can be encouraged. We can be helped with their words. Paul, the apostle, in Romans 7 is having the most awful, pitiful experience known to man. He's painfully spiraling down. Listen to the conversation of his heart in this chapter, trying to obey the law and the very law that he loved. And this man loved the laws of God with such a passion, but the very law that he loved was revealing the sin and the wretchedness of his life. Couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything, so he cries out the end of Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am! What an awesome place to be. What an awesome confession to make. In that moment of confession, transformation, and repentance, he encounters the wonders of Jesus Christ. Everything changes. You go into Romans 8. Romans 7 is about a condemned man under the law. Romans 8 is about a man that's living free by the power of the Holy Ghost. Incredible. Then, just before we went away, we looked at Proverbs chapter 29. Words from King Solomon. And if you remember, we looked at that phrase in or well, that word of wisdom from Solomon in chapter 29, 
where he said, without a vision, without revelation, people perish, people cast off restraint. And we saw how the vision and the revelation that Solomon was talking about was not just having big ideas and big dreams and, you know, carting off this list of this big plan for life. Dreamed up in the head of a man. No, vision, revelation is the entertainment in the, in the mind of a man of, or, a, or, or a woman of God thoughts, God promises, God words. Vision and revelation is not about us thinking at all. It's about God's mind and God's word and God's revelation coming into this. <laughs> Hallelujah! Your mind is wonderful, can entertain the greatest words, the greatest thoughts. When you open your Bible and you meditate on the living Word of God, you can't have a finer word to feast upon than that living word. That's why Paul, and we said it in that, in that, that message on that Sunday, that's why Paul exhorted the believers at Colossae to let the word of Christ dwell within them richly. That's what he wanted them to fill their lives with. Solomon talked about you know, when you don't have the revelation of God in your life and you don't have a vision from God and you're not embracing His wisdom, he talked about perishing. It's an awful word. It means to go around in circles, to live in a rut, to go from just one empty day to another empty day to a one empty year to another empty year. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. There's no life. The lights aren't switched on. The plug's out. But when you, get, when you get that word, that hunger in your heart for the word of God, he said, blessed is he who obeys wisdom's instruction. God wants to have an active voice in your life, in my life. He really does. And we, we looked at that. So if you missed any of that, you can hook up with the podcasts and look online and you can, you can feast on those words because I tell you now, the Word of God has wonderful things for all of our lives. Well, on Wednesday, we were traveling back from Spain and um, as we were traveling back through France, we were on a ring road around Paris, quite a large ring road. And it's an amazing city. Paris is an amazing city. And we were going around this great city. And at one point, off in the distance, we looked and saw, just momentarily, the Eiffel Tower. And on passing that, it really brought back to my mind a time when Faye and the kids decided to surprise me on my 50th birthday with a trip to Paris. And it was an incredible time. And as you may or may not know, that city is an incredible place, full of amazing sights to see. And, you know, when we were there, we went to the top of the Eiffel Tower. 
We scaled the Arc de Triomphe. We went up and down the River Seine by boat. And we bought countless little Eiffel Tower key rings from the street traders on every corner. And then, to the end, and this, this was all going through my mind as we passed through Paris on Wednesday. As we, as we came to the end of our visit, we visited, or it was a surprise visit, that Faye had made for us a visit to the Louvre Museum. Has anybody been to the Louvre? Been to the Louvre. Incredible place. It's a vast place. And you certainly don't get round it in a day. There's literally hundreds of thousands of historical artifacts housed in this palace. And added to all of the historical relics that are housed there, the Louvre also holds the world's largest art collection. Some 35,000 works of art decorated, decorated its walls, and they're all painted by the world's greats. Now, I'm a bit of an artist, but none of my paintings are there. I'm not an artist at all. But even if I was, probably my paintings wouldn't hang amongst those majestic pictures. It's an incredible sight. And you're just immersed in this, in this atmosphere of wonder. But amidst all of those great works of art that hang in the Louvre, there's one painting, one painting that rises in fame far above them all. One painting amidst all of the tens of thousands of pictures that hang there, one painting that's renowned the world over, one picture that everybody on that day wanted to stand in front of and behold. It's the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. When we finally got to the, the great hall that held this small work of art, I remember as we walked in, there was a sense in the air of excitement, a sense of expectation. And people were standing in long lines that were snaking all around that great hall just to get a few brief moments in front of this world-renowned painting. It was interesting just to watch how people patiently waited in long queues, young and old alike. All were there to behold this one picture. No other painting among all of the tens of thousands of pictures there captivated such a mass audience. After waiting for hours, I watched as people finally got to stand in front of the Mona Lisa and behold her face to face. But only, now this is the catch, for 30 seconds. They could only have 
a 30-second glimpse at this world-renowned painting. Once their time slot was up, they were asked to move quickly on so another could take their place. Some quickly fumbled and reached for their phones so they could get a quick selfie. But then they were asked to move along. And as I thought about that, as we went round that ring road in Paris, and I thought about the word that I'm going to bring to you this morning. And this word, I'm excited about it because it's been in waiting for at least three years. I've wanted to share this word with you many Sundays. Sometimes right at the last moment, the Holy Spirit would say, not now. But today, I'm excited to be able to release this word to you. And I share that story, that simple story with you today because over the next three Sundays, we are going to look at a masterpiece. A masterpiece that's far greater than the face of a lady painted by Leonardo da Vinci. We're going to gaze on a picture, not painted by human hands, but one created and unveiled by God himself. A picture so brilliant that it's filled with the colors of God's greatness and character. A picture that unfurls God's majesty and power for all of us to see and consider. You'll not be moved away after 30 seconds of view and asked to step aside when gazing on the glory of the Lord. The Holy Spirit will encourage you, exhort you, and invite you to meditate on God's revelation of himself. This masterpiece that we're going to look at over the next three Sundays is found in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And in fact, within this great chapter, we'll see that there are numerous pictures for us to behold that portray the many wondrous truths about God. Isaiah 40 shows us the beauty of God's unconditional love for His people. We also see in this great picture that Isaiah sees how God steps in to change and transform anyone that would turn to Him in trust. And here in this great picture, we're brought up and elevated to see from God's viewpoint. This is our privilege. This is our portion to hold the Word of God in our hand and hide it in our heart. Now, just to give you some background this morning, and I'm just going to be setting really a foundation out for the weeks ahead. The history around Isaiah chapter 40 sadly shows us that God 
God's people had abandoned him. God's people had abandoned their God. That's the historical context around this great chapter. But the wonderful news is that whilst God's people had abandoned their God, God had not abandoned his people. Isaiah chapter 40 shows us how God relentlessly pursues them. Even after they had long given up on God, God had not given up on them. Don't you find that amazing about our Lord? When we are unfaithful, He is faithful. When we are faithless, He's never faithless. He's faithful to us. He never gives up on us. He never throws in the towel regarding our lives. He's always there. He never abandons us, never gives up on us. And one of the strong messages that comes out of the past into the present from this wonderful chapter is how God never holds our history against us. God never holds your history against you. So you may have to stop holding yourself to history's hold over you because God doesn't hold our history against us. That's one of the things that we're going to see in this great chapter. He loves to move in our lives, move us into new places of strength and fruitfulness. But before he does, what we see in this wonderful vision of Isaiah, this wonderful picture, is that before anything, before, before God starts to make big changes and move us into those new places of life, He tenderly heals our wounds and repairs what's been damaged. He's so caring. He's so loving. Isaiah 40 shows us, in some respects, God's incomparable power. Nobody, nobody can contest His power. It's incomparable. But also, whilst Isaiah 40 shows us God's incomparable power, we also see a picture of a compassionate shepherd promising to pastor his flock of vulnerable sheep. At the heart of this great chapter, Isaiah 40, is an invitation. And this is what we're really going to focus in on this morning, at the heart of this wonderful chapter, Isaiah 40, is an invitation that was sent out to God's people, Judah. An invitation of no more than three words. And these three words, if embraced, would bring such revolution and change and transformation for their lives. If they heeded and embrace this invitation, this loving invitation, everything about their lives would change. And it's found at the end of verse 9. An invite to simply behold your God. Behold 
your God. That was the invitation that God sent out into the heart of his people. When they had abandoned him, when they were in crisis, when they were sinking and they could no longer swim, when they were in a hopeless place, in a hopeless way, God, through his prophet, sends out such a wonderful, loving, unconditional invitation to behold him, to look again on him. And that's why this, this whole service this morning is moving under the hand of the Holy Spirit. My ears pricked up when Wayne opened this service and said, we need to focus again our gaze on Jesus. Keep looking on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto him. The invitation is the same. As spoken by Isaiah to a people that were in a hopeless place. Behold your God. That was the call. And these three words were to be the source of Judah's healing and new life. Beholding God would give them fresh focus in their thinking. And just in these three little words, this loving invitation lay the secret to their freedom. New confidence, strength, and hope were all to be found in this call that Isaiah made to them. Behold your God. God wanted them to know that everything they needed was in Him. And He was their God even though they felt He wasn't. Beholding God was to be their lifelong vision. This wasn't just an invitation for a momentary glance. It was to be an ever-unfolding revelation of God with transforming effect in their lives. A readjustment of their attention, of their gaze, that would bring about new direction and change. And it was all to begin right in the heart of their thinking. They're thinking, behold your God. The background to this loving invitation was that God's people were at their lowest moment. Isaiah prophesied to his people who were captives and exiles. They had been homeless, homeless, living in Babylon for several decades. They were thousands of miles away from home, no sense of identity, no homeland. Their homeland lay in ruins, and all hope of ever getting back to Jerusalem and rebuilding it were far gone. This actually happened. This is the history that we find in the Word of God. But God had not given up on them. I wonder why God's people, Israel, 
are back in their own land today. I wonder why Jerusalem is prospering and that nation has God's favor all over it. I often think about God's people. They should not, I mean, they should be extinct, really. They shouldn't have even got out of Egypt. Hand of God on them, a miracle, and not even a holocaust could wipe them out. And no missiles from Iran or any other will wipe them out. Hallelujah. Why? Why? Hand of God. Hand of God on them, all over them. Just one other consideration. You're going to have to give me a bit of time now this morning, right? Because I'm... How is it, how is it that amongst all of the nations of the world, the most prosperous people are the Jews? How is that? How is it possible? How? How is it possible when nobody wants to give them a break, when, every, when the whole world is hostile towards them, really, but how is it that they are at the head and not at the tail of anything? How is it? I'll tell you how it is. They have a covenant that's unbreakable with God from their father Abraham. I tell you now, we are grafted into a wonderful branch. That's why we're blessed. That's why you prosper. That's why you'll be the head and not the tail. Because God has grafted you into a branch into a, into a vine that's very, very fruitful. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But at this point in their lives, all hope was gone. They'd lost sight of God. They'd, we may get to it in a few weeks' time, but they were actually saying in their heart in this chapter, God's forgotten us. Now, God hadn't forgotten them, and they were far away from God, but God was not far away from them. Isaiah chapter 40 comes to give them a new picture of a new moment as God's people. A moment that they couldn't possibly bring about themselves. It was a God moment where everything was about to change and come into line. And this had been outlined by exact prophecies that, listen to this, don't miss this. This had been outlined by exact prophecies that Isaiah had proclaimed 150 years before. God knew what was going to happen way before it happened. But he gave this vision to Isaiah through his book, 
And Isaiah saw 150 years on from where he was prophesying to this moment in Isaiah 40 where God would again visit his people in Babylon and change them and transform them and make them the people that he had promised he would make them. Behold your God was a new call to look away from what they had been looking to to turn their minds again on God and on His Word for their lives. Behold means to consider, to contemplate deeply, to collect all the facts, to bring together all of what you know about what's been said and promised in order to arrive at a clear and certain conviction. And that conviction that God wanted at the core of his people was that he had not given up on them. He was their God. He was going to raise them up from where they were and what they were in to be all he had called them to be. So that's just a little background there into this great chapter to give us some understanding as to where God's people were, the state they were in, and how God was reaching out and stepping in to their crisis to save them and to bring change. That's what he always does. So over the next three Sundays, we are going to look at five descriptive pictures in the overall picture of Isaiah 40 of how God wanted his people to behold him. Five pictures as to how God wanted his people to behold him. Now today, for time's sake, we'll probably only have time to cover one of those pictures, but in the remaining weeks, we'll cover the rest. We'll have a look at it, and we'll encourage ourselves in what God did for his people and take from that for our own lives and where we are in life. Because what we'll see in these pictures in Isaiah 40 is that God reveals himself to us in exactly the same way. I love what Paul said as he opened his message just a few weeks ago. And uh, how, many, how many were blessed by Paul? Sorry, uh, last week. How many were blessed by Paul's words? I was so blessed by it. But, but you know what? What I loved, what, what I loved about Paul's opening words in his message was about the importance of the Old Testament. Don't let anybody tell you that the Old Testament is irrelevant. I tell you now, they're in error. It doesn't matter if they stand on a pulpit. The Old Testament is part of the Bible, new and old. Paul said this in his admonitions to pastors that he was raising up. All Scripture is given by God, all of it, right from the front to the back, every single word. And I tell you, there, there, there are some that would say that the Old Testament is relevant. If you hear it come from their mouth, guys, turn it off. Literally, the Word of God is complete. The Word of God is holy. The Word of God from beginning to end. And 
I tell you, woe be to anybody that just says and casts off the Scriptures, any of them. Hallelujah. So that was, I was really encouraged by that because I'm, I'm with him, absolutely, when it comes to God's Word. So we're going to look today at this first picture that we see that Isaiah takes us into. And we're going to see how God wanted his people to behold him as the God of reconciliation. He's the God of reconciliation. And one of the main reasons why Judah's relationship had broken down with God was because they had turned their mind's eye to all of the idols and foreign gods around them. They'd become, a, they'd become assimilated and conformed and pressured by the culture around them to embrace the gods and the idols before them. They were worshipping idols made by their own hands, taking them away from the living God. And these lifeless idols had been praised and lifted up for all to see by the surrounding nations. And they praised these idols for bringing so-called freedom. Yet by embracing them, instead of finding freedom, God's people were enslaved. The very idols that promised fertility drove them to sacrifice their children. The idols that promised great fruitfulness and abundance in harvest made their lands arid, desolate, and barren. These so-called trendy gods that promised power and strength against the oncoming threats around them brought destruction upon Jerusalem as it lay in ruins. The very idols that promised security plunged God's people into terrible fear. They were captives, exiles, thousands of miles away from home. That's where their idols led them. The question has to be asked when you look at the history of it all is why would they choose idols fashioned and crafted by their own hands and walk away from a living, loving relationship with Jehovah? Well, the answer <laughs> is simple. Their idols were manageable. Their idols were under their control. They could bring them out of the cupboard and put them back in the cupboard when suited them, when it suited them. They could bring them out before tea and whilst having tea, put them away. And then after tea, they could bring them back out again. And it was all under their control, managed by their own desire. Their idols didn't speak back. Better still, they didn't have to listen to any direction 
or any guidance. They didn't have to be corrected by the living Word of God anymore. They could just live life loose, do what they wanted, heed no word outside of their own reason, and have a ritualistic religious experience on the way. They exchanged their relationship with the living God for visible idols made of worthless wood, overlaid with gold to hide the futility of the work of their hands. The outcome was emotional despair and chaos. And they were banished to a foreign land. Judah were far away from home. But as I've said, listen, not so far that God could not reach them. And be reconciled to them. And this is what Isaiah prophetically points out. The people of Judah were living in a foreign land, far away from home, yet in that desperately dark place, Babylon, God was calling them, inviting them lovingly to behold Him, to look upon Him, to gaze in wonder in a foreign land, to be reconciled to the God of reconciliation. Listen to verses 1 and verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 40. This is our first picture, picture of reconciliation. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 2 says this, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double. Everybody say double. double. Come on. Everybody say double. double. She has received double from the Lord's hand for all of her sins. These are words that describe a picture, the most beautiful picture of reconciliation as God calls for the comfort of His people who were living in despair. And the first emphasis of it is one of reconciliation and forgiveness for Israel, God's covenant people. Because Isaiah, way ahead of time, had seen their Messiah, their promised Messiah. And therefore, he knew that their salvation and deliverance was in him. And this faithful prophet, Isaiah, was to announce to this disobedient nation that had forgotten God, that the basis of their forgiveness had already been accomplished. These words, in these first opening verses, were words that were to penetrate right into their heart. That's what the word tenderly means. It means speak comfort and healing and wholeness right into the heart. 
God wanted to get his people's heart back by changing their mind as they turned to him to behold him. This message that called for comfort was also a cry to declare that Jerusalem's warfare and iniquity was pardoned. For she has, this is what Isaiah says, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Say it with me again, because I want to get this point in, into you this morning. Say it, double for all her sins. That last sentence that we've just voiced can trouble us, can trouble our hearts. A sentence that announces that Judah had received double for all her sins can get you a bit worried about God. Especially the phrase, double for all her sins. But double for all her sins doesn't mean that God punished the nation twice for what her sins required. No. It means the complete opposite. This was a reference to an Eastern custom. If a man owed a debt, he couldn't pay, his creditors would write the amount of the debt on paper. And then his creditors would come very publicly and nail it to the front door of the man who owed the debt. So that everyone passing that house would know, here lives a man who does not pay his debts. The note that would mark that man's door put shame over his head over his family, and over his home. And everyone that entered that house or left it would be reminded of the unpaid debt that the man owed. But if someone paid the debt for him, then the creditor, listen to this, the creditor would come and double over the paper that was nailed to the door. And he would nail over the double, the double debt or the double paper on that man's door that represented his debt publicly for all to see that what was owed had been paid in full. So the phrase that she Judah has received double from the Lord's hand for all her sins is in fact a beautiful picture announcing to Israel as a nation that in the death and resurrection of her Messiah, her debt has been fully paid and doubled over by God. Full provision has been made even though they had been in exile for 70 years, even though it seemed as if God had left them and God had forgotten them and they had sunken into a pit that they couldn't get out of. God was announcing to this nation and they knew exactly what it meant 
through the prophet Isaiah that she had received double for all her sins. All payment, all provision had been made in her Messiah. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus said, I am the door. I am the door. And in him, we have received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. As our sins was nailed to the door, Jesus, complete provision, complete payment was made in full. For all of our lives, we walk free, we walk under God's favor, we've received his forgiveness simply because God has paid in full through Christ Jesus on the cross for all of our sins. In fact, Paul points this out, that for Jew and Gentile alike to get today, we can proclaim and see the, what, the same wonderful announcement being made concerning our sins. In Paul's great declaration in 2 Corinthians 5, he declares the same message of reconciliation that Isaiah announced. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 21. I love it. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'd say that's Double from the Lord's hand for all of our sin. Hallelujah. Payment in full. Shame and guilt gone forever. No more accusation. We stand faultless before the throne of God because it's on Him that the punishment for our sins has been made on Christ Jesus. Amen. It's the gospel, the good news. And today, you may be here, you may be watching online, and you may feel burdened about mistakes that you've made in life, the wrongs that you've done, the hurt that you've caused, the decisions that you've made. Well, this is a wonderful word of forgiveness, a word of reconciliation that God makes to you as he's made to all of us. All you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you shall be saved. Believing is a beholding word. Behold him. Turn away from what you've been in. 
refocus and change your mind in relation to who Jesus Christ is and wants to be in your life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold him. The Bible says you shall. You shall be saved. As we come to a close this morning, God wanted his people to behold him as the God of reconciliation. They weren't seeking God, but God was seeking them, stepping into their crisis, saving them, delivering them, giving them new hope where they were at. Things were going to change. Things were going to be transformed as we will see in the week's weeks to come. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. I'm going to close in just a few minutes. Today, through these words, the Holy Spirit could be calling you like he called his people to behold him as your healer. The picture of your life and the challenges in your body, said this before, are very different to the word that you read, that you hold in your hand. You say, Lord, God, by His Spirit, wants to call you to behold Him as your healer. Or you may not move suddenly, instantaneously. But as you behold him, as you meditate on his word, as you lay your heart before him and behold your God, your God, not anybody else's God, your God. And you turn away from anything that's captivated you Turn away from anything that, that has had hold. You turn to him and you behold your God. Healing will come. We have to believe for that. Whether it's in our physical body, whether it's in our mind. It could be this morning that you're going to behold him as your provider. Or you're going to behold him as your peace taking away your anxieties, your worries, and your concerns. Challenges are always going to be there. But when you behold him as your peace, you'll be able to just bring order. Sometimes in all of the chaos. Or you may need to behold him as the God of all comfort that Paul talks about. That you receive comfort from God himself and from that comfort, you're enabled and empowered to comfort others. What way today do you need to behold God? What way? Because whatever way it is, He's there for you. He's got, He's got what you need. You may be all good today. Maybe all good, absolutely wonderful. Really great. And that's that's. Those seasons are, are wonderful. But it could be that things are challenging. There's fears in your heart. 
Time has changed. Life is difficult. Well, that's all going to get corrected because God is good. It is. And listen, he loves you. My God, he loves us. He loves us. Behold him. Behold him. Behold the words of the Apostle Paul. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up with us, for us all, how will he with him not freely give you all things? What do you need? What do you need? You go to God. What do you need? He'll freely give you all, 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 all things. Well, I'd like a Lamborghini, please. No, you don't need a Lamborghini. You don't need a worthless piece of tin to sound loud going down the road. No, you don't need a Lamborghini. You walk into the presence of God as a child of the King and you can have anything that you need. That you need. And you don't need a Lamborghini Aventador because they're very uncomfortable anyway when you go in them, because I went in one once. That's another story. Listen, whatever you need, let's bow our heads. We're going to pray. And Wayne is going to lead us, and we're going to sing. Again, thank you this morning for your attention and concentration and the opening of your heart. Appreciate that. Lord, I pray for your people, all of us, here today. Thank you for your loving invitation to behold you. Thank you for your loving invitation for us and your call to our hearts to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our eyes may have been wandering all around because of the, of the, the challenges that we, we face. And you, you, you know what happens in life. You know how the distractions come and and how we can feel alone and even feel forgotten and, and, and abandoned. But, Lord, you never abandon us. You never leave us. You're always there. You never, you never forsake us. Jesus, you said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm there. So, Lord, we come this morning, the end of this service, and some of us have needs, and some of us, Lord, the questions are far bigger than the answers that we hold. We're concerned about life and worried about our future. And, Lord, we want to behold you again. And as we put our eyes on you, the eyes of our understanding, like Paul said, will be enlightened, that we will have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that we would know the, the, the wonderful love that you have for us. Lord, as we go from this place today, we'll take time to sit in your presence, to gaze on your glory, to read your word. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you will help us to unpack it in its richness and fullness. Amen. Finally, and this is my finally. Sometimes my finally are going for an hour. I'm not going to do that. Listen. 
go from this place today, Holy Spirit is just going to drop some words in your heart. Some words from the Word of God. And you're going to fix, you're going you're to grab hold of them. And you're going to fix your mind on them. And it's going to be life to you. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.